He has defeated he who must not be named, was a three-time winner of the Quidditch Cup, and even won the heart of Ginny Weasley. But even Harry Potter isn't immune to the fundamental laws of economics. You're listening to Upset Batters. Most of our podcast episodes fit into one of two camps, either explaining complex and relevant topics like Obamacare or a carbon tax, or finding economics in places that most wouldn't think to look. Today, our topic fits into the latter. Our special guest is Marta Pademska-Mikluk of Beloit College, here to talk to us about the economics of Harry Potter. Marta, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. Now, when I think of witches and wizards and the the world of Harry Potter. I think they can do whatever they want. They have no limits or boundaries. And most textbooks present economics, the, the fundamental pro- problem of economics, as scarcity. In a paper you published, you said that actually in the world of Harry Potter, these w- witches and wizards also have to follow the laws of scarcity. Can you provide examples of that? Sure. So I think that's one of the most interesting uh, things about the Harry Potter series is that actually Rowling plays her characters in, in the world that obeys uh, scarcity. So the wizards, yes, the wizards of the Harry Potter, they still have to face the same scarcity as the muggles, and the muggles are the non-magical folks. So uh, basically, just as the rest of us, wizards need to decide how to make the best use Uh, of the limited uh, resources that they have available. And, of course, this is not to say that being a wizard doesn't come with uh, certain advantages. Of course, wizards can change properties of objects, they can move objects uh, effortlessly, they can even turn one object into another, but they do all of that still within the scarcity. So, for example, I think that one of the most intuitive uh, um, illustrations of this it's in the um, in the scene or in in the chapter uh, when Harry, just before his fourth year at Hogwarts, is shopping for school supplies. And what catches his eyes is this uh, broom. He has a very fast flying broom that would allow Harry to to be an even better player in in the Quidditch game. And he really wants that broom, but he reasons with himself and he deliberates and he spends hours staring at it. And eventually he decides that it's basically not worth giving up all that gold that he has inherited from his parents uh, to get that broom. I think that that reasoning that he uh, that he goes through and makes that decision not to buy the broom is a, a very clear illustration of the fact that wizards, just like the rest of us, have to deal with scarcity. So, of course, you know, we, we muggles can't jump on a broom and and fly, which wizard, witches and wizards can do, but nonetheless, they still need to get the broom, which is a scarce object in itself. Exactly. What are Gamp's laws of elemental transfiguration, and how do they apply to economics? All right, so the Gamp's law is actually the underlying principle and the reason for why that explains why there is scarcity in the magical world. Even though we see this law being obeyed throughout the books. We only learn about it in the final book. And 
It's from the conversation that takes place between Ron and Hermione when they are searching for Horcruxes. So this is their they the this is their final year at Hogwarts, but they are not at Hogwarts. Instead, they are on this great mission to defeat uh, Voldemort. They're exhausted, tired, hungry. And because of this frustration and, and, uh, and exhaustion, uh, Ron complains to Hermione and says that she shouldn't use magic to create food for them. Big mistake, no, because uh, not only he's whiny, but he also quickly follows uh, saying that you know, my mom can do it. Why can't you? And no girl likes being compared to the guy's uh, mother, of course. So Hermione snaps back and she says, you know, if you if you knew better, you would know that because of the Gams law of transfiguration, um, you really can't cre create food out of thin air. So basically, you can make food out of uh, you can create more food if you have already if you already have some or you can transform it and the magic helps you create uh, dishes in a faster way, I guess, but you cannot make it out of thin air. So basically this is this Gams law of elemental transfiguration is the reason why why they just can't deal with hunger by, by creating. That sort of property reminds me a lot of, you know, you can make a connection to technology because, for example, an iPhone, you have a lot of these materials that have, of course, been on the earth for so long, but only recently have we put the materials together in a way that serves the functionality that an iPhone does. Can magic be seen as a form of technology where you're taking a, a certain f form of matter and adding value to it? I think so. And actually, that's how I explain technology to, to my students, is to tell them, you know, technology and technological innovation, that's for us what magic does for the wizard. So basically, we still have scarcity, but because of technology or magic, we can deal with it uh, more effectively. So we are able basically to use the same resources and create a better life. In the books, I think the, the, this point is often emphasized by Arthur Weasley. Uh, who is basically who is a wizard? But he's so fascinated with with us, with muggles, and he admires how we can use magic and uh, how without magic we can still create very interesting uh, ways of, of overcoming um, the difficulties that that scarcity presents. So, for example, he admires things like cars and airplanes, but also very uh, everyday items like duct tape. He, he has no need for any of that because he uses. So if we think of magic changing the value of a good, another way that we can improve capital efficiency in, in the muggle world, you know, we can improve the effective value of an iPod or iPhone, but we can also improve the productivity of a human, increasing human capital. Can you think of magic in those terms? Yes, I think that magic or opt obtaining the ability to control magic is very similar to building up human capital. This ability to cast spells uh, is not innate, but it must be learned. You need to be born a wizard, but uh, the magical talents are of no use without the proper uh, schooling and training. So while some wizards will be more talented than others, all of them need to learn to control their magical skills. And then the more you study, the better you become. So the talent is only like this initial uh, capital, but then it's up to you and, your, and the effort that you put in in order to increase its value. Of course, the most memorable line, I think, for a lot of people, or at least for me, is in that first movie when Hermione 
says it's not Wingardium, Wingardium Leviosa, it's Wingardium <laughs> Leviosa, and that shows that even though those spells are there, and if you have all the materials, you've got to say it the right way or else it won't work. Exactly. That's a great point. In, in the witch and wizard world, you can, you know, they have this mass economy, obviously with the banking system, Gringotts, and a lot of parallels to, to our modern, our muggle economy. I'd like to know your take on the wizard world's use of elves, because they sort of seem like this form of slave labor, and even though they, they have all these, all this magic available to them to, you know, move objects and just radically transform things to increase their value, they still have house elves. What do you, what, how can you sort of explain that in economic terms? So I think uh, slavery or, or the house slaves in, in the case of the magical world are a very fascinating issue for uh, an economist because slavery doesn't really make sense from the economic perspective. Slavery is not an efficient use of, uh, of labor because a worker is, a slave worker is never going to be as as productive as a, as a free worker. Yes? So it's a puzzle. If we, economics tells us all about the incentives, that the incentives matter. So if we know that, then, then we see slavery, it should puzzle us because the incentives in, the, in slavery are not conducive to... If you look at this relationship between the, the house uh, slaves, house elves and the wizards, it's definitely one of, of dominance and, and control. And... As an economist, I immediately think about why wouldn't they hire uh, the, the house slaves? Why do they have this uh, ongoing uh, relationship that is, uh, that is very detrimental to productivity? And I think the reason, uh, and this is my interpretation of the books, is that basically there is the codification of races. So the Ministry of Magic has all these rules and it forbids non-magical creatures, sorry, non-human creatures, from using for from owning a wand, so only humans who are uh, wizards can have a wand. But if you are, uh, for example, a werewolf, or if you are a giant, or a half giant, or if you are a, an elf, you are not allowed to have a wand. So that basically means that there are two groups of citizens. There is the wizards who have, with wands, and there are the second class citizens. And I think it's because of this regulation that basically freeing a house elf doesn't make sense because what is this poor house elf going to do? It's like they don't really have many alternatives. And uh, the, re I, the reason I think this might be correct interpretation is because there is this uh, Hermione, uh, she really struggles with why is it that the house elves don't want to be free. And I think that's because the regulations uh, of the Ministry for Magic make uh, freedom very unattractive for the household. Kind of even if, you know, as irrational as slavery was or is in the wizard world, it, it, can, it can draw this parallel of, of past economic history of industrialized societies, and maybe gradually it'll be abolished. I think in one book, I forget which one, some students formed the Society for, for the Promotion of Elfish mm -hmm. Warfare, which you could say is a, the precursor to the abolition movement. I think that, that there are definitely some similarities, and um, the, I think that the values that the Organization for Freeing of the Slaves represents are, are very similar to the, to the sentiments we have and, and finding slavery really um, morally appalling. However, I don't think um, we necessarily should be thinking of slavery as like a stage in, um, in human history, because 
Slavery is more of an anomaly. So we have the case of North America, Americas and then the ancient Rome. But other than that, slavery was not really a prevalent form. It's like many countries, there was never any slavery. I like to think that slavery is an anomaly and, and we basically need to look for some institutional or structural reasons that, that make it uh, happen. Interesting. So it's the Ministry of Magic that is institutionalizing the elves and the giants as second-class citizens because if freed they can't even use magic yes or they are very limited in their use of magic right. yes yeah? so i think that if, uh, the house elves they have certain um, kinds of magic but they are not they're they're they are not allowed to use all that the magic has to offer and they basically can have less access to the benefits of magic than the even Chuck Norris or the guy from the Dos Equis commercials and Harry Potter, the hero of the wizarding world, sometimes have to rely on their friends' specialties. They can't do everything alone. How does this apply to economics and what are the most illustrative examples from the books? Okay, so I think if you read the books, it's really high, almost impossible to ignore Rowling's appreciation of the benefits of trade. She uh, basically could teach uh, principles of economics and, and talk about comparative advantage and specialization. And I think that uh, the friendship uh, between Ron, Hermione and Harry and how they overcome all the obstacles and how they, uh, how they fight Voldemort basically illustrates that you can achieve much more if you cooperate. So uh, Ron, basically Harry is this uh, broomstick flyer. Ron is known for his strategic abilities, and then there is uh, Hermione, who is basically, her, her uh, specialization is academic knowledge, and, and logic is extremely logical. So Harry relies on his friends in order to uh, fight Voldemort. He basically, most of the things that, that he does, he couldn't achieve, and he says so repeatedly throughout the books, uh, that he couldn't uh, achieve those things without, without his friends. And I think that the benefits of voluntary exchange and the cooperation between the, the three are even clearer when we compare the successes of Harry, Ron and Hermione to Malfoy's solitary attempts at killing Dumbledore. So Malfoy repeatedly fails to kill Dumbledore as he, he uh, launches this uh, mission and, and, then, and then repeatedly fails. Maybe that's because his goal was just not very uh, appealing, but um, Ron and Hermione and Harry, most of the time when they said to do something, they figure out the way to, to achieve it. And they do so basically by uh, helping one another and using their, their, their own independent sense of skills. So when F.A. Hayek said, if we embrace central planning and re reject trade, we'll be on a road to serfdom, could you also say that we'd be on a, a road to become Lucius Malfoy? Uh, yes, I, I, I would agree with that, that's a fair assessment. We've seen all these illustrations of how economic principles are present in Harry Potter and how they do still have to follow the laws of economics, but are there examples where the characters are not bound by scarcity? I don't think uh, there are examples of that. However, there are some examples of the characters just failing to apply economic principles. For example, and I think we all do that sometimes. So, for example, we uh, go to a movie theater, we hate the movie, but we don't leave because we paid for the tickets, forgetting about the sunk cost. Or we 
take on a task that is new to us and in the retrospect it turns out that it sh we just should have paid someone else to do that and um, so I think that um, that that happens to us and the, one of the examples in the book is uh, Hermione time turner where she basically uses a time turner in order to take multiple classes and because she just loves to study so she takes like uh, i don't know double the amount of classes that everyone else is uh, taking at the time and she uses time travel to um to basically be able to take all those courses because some of them are offered at the same time so basically she fails to realize that there is a that the law of diminishing returns also applies to her beloved studies yes she fails to understand that there can be too much of a good thing something that even though, you know, that basically the additional course is not really going to make her that much uh, better off, especially since she ends up being uh, exhausted. In that example, even if she is irrational and ex sort of experiences and acknowledges the law of diminishing returns eventually, it seems like the idea of using the time turner and creating more than 24 hours in a day gets rid of that constraint that you know, seems apparent really in the muggle world, no matter how efficient we get in the muggle world, we're always going to have 24 hours in the day, or as far as yeah. my realm of understanding of quantum physics. So yeah. it, it's just the, the existence of her ability to do it, sort of a uh, refutation of scarcity. I guess it's an attempt to do so, but in the end, uh, I guess it turns out to be a failed attempt because she... Her um, energy, I guess, is fixed. So basically, she only has enough energy for a twelve-hour day. She doesn't have an energy enough energy for uh, for two twelve-hour days in a row. Yeah. So I think that's why. So I guess I would say it's an attempt at uh, at using technology to escape scarcity, but it just doesn't turn out uh, to be a success for her mind. There's a distinct separation between the wizarding world and the muggle world. Obviously, some muggles know of the existence of the wizarding world, and Hermione, I believe her parents were both muggles, so there is a, a cross there. But you mentioned earlier how uh, Ron Weasley's dad is very impressed by a lot of muggle transportation and technology. Do you think the wizarding world could benefit from conducting more trade with the muggle world? <laughs> That's a great question. I think that, well, economics tells us that voluntary exchange is always mutually beneficial. And we do see the words, uh, the wizards frequently buying muggle services and products. Uh, for example, as you said, public uh, transportation. But we don't, unfortunately, see much in terms of muggles buying wizarding products. And I think that's too bad because I, for one, would be very interested in maybe buying some liquid lac or uh, the flying broom or the self-cleaning dishes it's uh, i think that the the way rolling kind of escapes this uh, this uh, world where where you know we the two world the possibility of the two worlds uh, trading with one another is basically by um having the minister for magic forbid this trade because if you if they start trading then the whole anonymity and secrecy of the uh, wizarding world would be revealed. So basically, I think that the reason Ministry for Magic was originally in the first place set up was to make sure that the wizarding world remains secret. And if it's secret, then there cannot be, you know, there can be any trade.
A lot of the things that we've talked about are in a paper um, that you you wrote with a co-author. Do you have any future projects regarding Harry Potter? Yes. So my co-author and I, Darwin Dale, um, is my co-author, and uh, we are going to actually write uh, one more project, uh, maybe more. But we are right now working on a on a second project, and the, basically it's going to be public choice. Um, applications or public choice examples from from Harry Potter and Rowling spends quite uh, um, a lot of time in the in the series talking about the institutional aspects and and the interactions between the individuals in the government and everyone else so basically like um, the way they want to get rid of Dumbledore who is the headmaster of this private enterprise this private uh, private school and how the ministry of magic tries to um, get involved in the affairs uh, at Hogwarts so I think that the, there's also a lot of rent seeking, seeking uh, in the books and there I mean there are quite a few examples that uh, that really pertain to public choice so basically that's that's our current project and I'm hoping to have an early draft of this paper by the summer. Can you just give a, a few bullet point um, summary of what public choice is for our listeners that might not be as well-versed? Sure. So public choice is uh, the study of the political of politics uh, with the use of economics. So the individuals who interact in the market are believed to be self-interested. The public choice thinkers take this idea and apply it to the government. So basically public choice is giving up this assumption of benevolence on the part of the government and trying to look at the government in the same way as we look at the market participants. My guest today has been Marta Pademska mikluk of Boy College. Marta, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Comperl and recorded in Radio Free Jerome Studios in Austin, Texas. My guest today has been Marta Pademska mikluk Want more sources relevant to today's episode? Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash upsetpatterns.